0: Welcome to Crime Conversations, the true crime podcast brought to you by CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime weekend. In the lead up to CrimeCon in London on September 25th and 26th, each week we're bringing two of our favourite podcasts together to find out more about their fascination with true crime. Each conversation will explore subjects including how they got involved in true crime, the cases that have stuck in their mind, the process behind their podcast and what they think makes a great true crime show. We'd also like to say a big thank you to all those true crime fans who sent questions to ask our guests. To find out who we'll be featuring on the podcast across the season and for more information on our London event, check crimecon.co.uk or visit our Instagram
1: page at crimecon underscore UK. Let's find out who's on this episode. Hi, I'm Joshua Miles. I am the host of the Crime Time podcast, This Week in True Crime, and a YouTube channel by the same name, Joshua Miles. And I cover true crime cases in depth in a documentary style across all platforms. And in This Week in True Crime, I also do current and ongoing events in true crime. Hi, I'm
0: Dr. Shaham Das, host of A Psych for Sore Minds, a YouTube channel which addresses a whole range of mental health issues, some of which are related to offending. So Joshua I've been I've been looking at your videos on your channel really entertaining very detailed how long have you been doing this for?
1: I've been uploading on on the channel for true crime I think since October of 2012 2016 maybe 2017 because I was working in America in the music industry and I was far away from friends family I was there for six months and I just really needed a hobby that wasn't my job at the time and I was watching a lot of Ellen O'Neill I don't know if you've heard of her and George Marie some of my really good friends now but I was watching their YouTube channels back then and I was like you know this would be really good practice for videography because I did uh, music videos and then also I've always had this morbid curiosity into true crime all the time since before I can remember my mom and I used to sit and watch Murder, She Wrote on TV and the Manon McCann case is probably the biggest thing that kind of made it all very real when I was a lot younger, because that was what, 2006, seven, and I was in year four, five at school, I was young, and uh, they had a memorial at school, and my mum always told me that I used to not be able to walk past it, because it's just so impactful, and I think from then onwards, I just had this curiosity, I think everyone has a bit of a morbid curiosity into true crime, I think that's why it's so popular online, and in on Netflix, and on TV, you know it's a fear of the unknown but we've got that curiosity into it
0: i completely agree I, I think that there is this new kind of wave of interest about true crime and it seems relatively recent mm. like i i think all mm. these netflix documentaries etc they've only really started or mm-hmm. got momentum in the last sort of four or five years what do you think yeah. reason that it's it's been in the last four or five years and not say the 10 years before then
1: I think the accessibility of it has really expanded. I think the internet's played a massive part. I mean, I don't know if you saw the Elisa Lam Netflix documentary, which I'm not going to get started on because I do not like that documentary on Netflix, but that talks about web sleuths and I had a few of my creator friends, they were interviewed for it. It just demonstrated how all these people, they came online and they were in this web forum. I don't know if you've heard of web sleuths. It's like this um, internet forum where people just browse through things and like try and be a detective. I don't really know. I don't go on it. With the Elisa Lam case, they had all these different theories and they actually made a massive mistake and accused somebody who, was definitely not involved or being involved and practically ruined their lives. But it just goes to show that it was just this big herd um, mentality of trying to solve this case and find an answer. And everyone just really wanted to be a bit of a hero. And I think that plays into how the mainstream media media also portrays cases because they always portray it as in, can you try and guess who done it before the episode's out? And I think that value of entertainment brought into the fact that it is so morbidly, Curious. It's kind of the perfect combination, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. I wonder whether the, the interest always been there, but maybe the big kind of corporations and channels and TV outlets never really picked up on it before. And it's only because mm. people like like yourself have been have been making their own material that now, right in the last few years, people have taken notice.
1: I did a. It was a really old case, maybe a early 1900s. And one of the things that stuck out is it was this really horrible murder, and people flocked to the crime scene to take away a cake that that one of the victims had made before they had died and they were trying to chip away paint which had bloodstains on to take home to say that they'd been at the crime scene. So I do think that there's always been rooted this need to go and see and learn about those kinds of things and fascination about it. And I think really with the advances in media and the accessibility of media it's just kind of skyrocketed completely. So what about
0: yourself? Where did your personal fascination come from do you think
1: definitely the madeline mccann case it's a case that i will never cover because it is just too much but i think that one was the first major instance where i realized because you know i grew up in a christian household right i grew up in i was going to a christian school i was very bubbled like bubble wraps protected um my dad's south african so he's seen a lot of stuff and i think he just wanted to protect me and my brothers and we just grew up in a very happy kind of bubble away from the world. So we never really saw any of the truth of what what is going on in the world and any of the dangers. I think the Malamit Khan case, it's impossible to avoid it when it was on the news and it was everywhere. And I think that was my first exposure to negativity in the world to that degree. And I think from then I I was just kind of hooked curiously into that. What got you into doing forensic psychiatry, if that I can't remember if that's correct. I think that's correct. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: that is correct. Um, so I suppose I was a bit like yourself. I was I was morbidly fascinated with crime. I was fascinated with the image of crime, to be perfectly honest. So as a young teenager, I loved gangster rap. I listened to stuff like Cypress Hill, Wu-Tang, Snoop Doggy Dogg. Um, and I knew it was fantasy. I didn't you know, actually think that this was my reality. Maybe a bit like you, I was. I, I grew up in quite a sheltered, boring little village in Cheshire. And I think that was the first time that I felt a connection to it. And it's only much, much later that I got interested in true crime. But to answer your question, I went to medical school and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I just didn't really plan for the future. And then I just kind of stumbled into psychiatry because I did a placement on, on a psychiatric ward in Edinburgh. Just fell in love with it straight away. I think the the people that I worked with were really friendly. So a lot of other subspecialties, especially like surgery, they basically treat medical students like a like something that they've that they've scraped off at the bottom of their shoe. They just see you as Nick. Is it
1: like in Grey's Anatomy? <laughs> I
0: you must
1: got- have a medical degree. I've watched all of Grey's Anatomy. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not actually Grey's Anatomy, but is that what they do? They, oh, it's ridiculous! It's absolutely ridiculous. One one surgeon can do absolutely everything. Apparently. And there's always a different miracle brain surgery. That's one of a kind that they do every week. Yeah. It's ridiculous, but it's TV, isn't it?
0: I think my experience is probably more like scrubs. <laughs> Fair. Um, but yeah, so I just stumbled into psychiatry just by accident, really. I, I found an affinity with talking to people who were mentally ill, who were quite psychotic. And then after it was only after I started my formal psychiatric training that I, I stumbled into forensics. So I worked on a ward with people that had committed quite serious offenses. And that was the first time that it tied into my morbid um, intrigue about violence and crime. So I I didn't even know that it existed as a subspecialty until I actually did a placement in it.
1: Do you remember the first like major case that you were brought into? What was, I don't, of course you can't talk about the details, but what was that like for you? Uh,
0: Absolutely I do, yeah. So I don't think it's the first ever patient I saw, but it's the first time I gave evidence in court and it was at the Old Bailey. And it was for a young teenage girl who had become floridly psychotic literally overnight with very little warning. She was never antisocial, never violent before, never had problems with a mental illness before. And she suffocated and killed her nephew um, just out of the blue when she was babysitting him. And... It was really kind of emotionally charged for me, as it it would be for most people. I assessed her in prison. It was a really difficult assessment because she was very uncooperative. So because she was so psychotic, we found out later, months down the line, that she had this intense kind of paranoia and she thought that people, including myself, were, were out to try and kill her. And so I just couldn't get anything from assessing her. And I felt really nervous because I was very aware that the evidence that I give would potentially really change the outcome of either her staying in prison for most of her life or going to a psychiatric hospital for a few years and just the experience of going to the old bailey and standing there really nervous in a suit and being cross-examined by by a judge and the barrister it's fine now because i've done it many times since then but the very first time i definitely remember and the other element was her brother who's the father of the victim i would liaise with him quite frequently to get like some history about about the patient herself and also just in terms of family therapy and that was as what obviously obviously quite emotionally charged as well because on the one hand he's looking out for a sister but on the other hand he's you know the father of the victim so yeah, yeah very extremely difficult convoluted yeah emotional situation yeah absolutely do you find yourself getting emotionally invested in the cases that you investigate
1: i think i've developed a way of kind of separating work from my own personal life of course there's cases where it's extremely difficult and it takes a lot longer to research and and write the scripts about and film and edit because they're just so horrendous and there's a lot of details that we don't end up putting in the video because they're just too gruesome and intense and especially when I'm working with family members that can be really really difficult to interview them and talk to them about their experiences and yeah, it can be really hard sometimes, but I think I'm. We work as a nine to five. I'm in the office now. We 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 come into work at nine, finish at, well, finish at six, <laughs> and then we have our own time off. But I think I've got a good way of trying to separate that from directly affecting me. Mostly, I mean, you kind of have to. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. And do you, you
0: work full time on your channel? Yes. Fix- uh,
1: well, we we um so the company I own we have a few employees and we work with another company we manage my channel and a few other projects that we have and a merchandising company all at once but i do predominantly my channel the research filming editing i do all of it myself bar research which either my brand and production manager helps with the research or um we've had a few other people that have worked with us with researching so that we can um get certain things out because I get a lot of emails from people who really want their pet case so like a John Doe case or a case that's really local to them that's very difficult for us to get information about so they end up doing research and then send us what they found and all their research and then I turn that into scripts and then we pay them obviously for their time because it's very difficult and then um yeah so i just i do everything myself (laughs) we did have an editor at one point but i am just a bit of a control freak with the final video and i went way too long
0: i have to ask you this right so there are a lot of people that attempt or have attempted to do what you do which is to work full time and make a living from your channel. But I imagine very few actually get that level of popularity. So how have you done it? How have you got like, so I know you've got 160,000 uh, followers almost on YouTube. How do you do that?
1: Yeah, we, um, the difficulty of being on YouTube is, I mean, even when you're uploading just your podcast to YouTube, is YouTube will always put the advertisers first. So I don't think you're in a partner program quite yet. Um, but when you do get in a partner program, you'll realize just how how many rules there are and um i think i spent a good three or four months reverse engineering their process to find our own way of ensuring that content is monetized because it sounds like oh we just make it for money but if if a video isn't monetized then youtube doesn't push it because they take a large cut of the ad revenue and if they don't monetize it, then there's no incentive for them to push it to audiences. And we there's a lot of, of proof that this happens. So the last thing we want is a case that we because we cover lesser-known cases, we don't want that to not get the attention that it deserves using our platform. So we have to ensure that it's monetized for that reason. And also because we have to pay the employees, the house that I'm currently in, you know, all the bills that come with with it and I kind of fell into it I it was never it never intended to be a job it just kind of happened and I quit my job in July of 2019.
0: It's fair to want to get paid for your videos because as you said this is your job it's not like you know this is your source of income it's not something you're doing just.
1: Yeah it's not just my income it's the people that work for me is income because we hired in the middle at the start of lockdown one um so it was really fortunate that we're able to do that and give people some security with their income but we also do sponsorships a lot because youtube is difficult and they don't like just don't like true crime often just don't like it being covered but if a news channel like bbc news or whatever decides to cover in vivid detail a case they're perfectly fine to have ads i have beef with youtube (laughs) (laughs) my approach to
0: videos is very different from yours simply because I, i don't have the time so i have probably got a maximum of one or two hours realistically to research any video that I make and about the same to record it and yeah because because I don't have the time I don't I I know that I'm not going to compete with just factual information so my USP I think is being able to talk about the psychiatric aspects and to give a professional opinion um, and try and
1: try and compare the the true crime case
0: especially the perpetrator with patients that i've seen
1: it's really interesting your, your content with those comparisons and with that expert knowledge to see when you know when you are being called to be uh, an expert witness in court to see how that kind of plays out and your side of the story because i mean a lot of there's a lot on youtube there's a lot of people who've got their psychology degree and then they use that but then getting that next tier like that next level of information and the way that you explain it to is really 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 helpful and uh oh, thank you. doesn't make me feel like i'm sat in like a lecture or something <laughs> thank
0: you. I, I have to say i'm struggling to kind of get out there i think that making good content is only the first step. You have to actually kind of break through the the competition. And
1: unfortunately now everything's so saturated with regardless of podcast, YouTube, everywhere, even TikTok now, it's just so difficult to get that initial traction. And I knew this, this, this was the same when I started. So I um, don't know how I did it. I did something called Summer of True Crime where I collaborated with 25 different creators in the true crime world regardless of size regardless of anything just to come together for this common you know this common goal and we did a ridiculous amount of videos and i don't think i slept very much for like the two three months it was on but that really helped is diversifying the audience and i think that applies with podcasts too because you can definitely you know be a guest speaker on different podcasts and it can really help i think collaborating is one of the oldest and best ways i think of growing a channel as long as it's done in the right way
0: is there any point in your journey where you just thought you you consider giving up or you just thought this isn't worth the effort
1: all the time (laughs) all the time Um, (laughs) first hate comment hate comments are horrendous. I think with podcasts, it's easy because you don't really see hate comments. You, You can't comment on a Spotify. You can't comment on Apple podcasts, but on YouTube, people hide behind their keyboards and they come for you for whatever, absolutely anything. And it is not nice at all to begin with. It can be really, really difficult to deal with because there's all these people that don't know you saying all these things about you, um, from, I suffer with acne, so from acne to the way I speak. People question my sexuality under my videos, even though it's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. And there's been lots of times, I think, with the hate comments. I think, but though over time, it gets easier. I mean, I don't really look at the comments at the moment, which sounds bad, but I think it gets to a point, well, you're getting four, 500 to 1,000 comments on a video. You can't really read them all. Um, So I only really read the top five to 10 comments because usually that's the general consensus of how an audience is taking the video but yeah I just there's been lots of moments I mean there was one where a family member contacted me and asked me to take down the video and I felt so bad I felt so guilty I felt like I'd offended them I'd done so wrong it wasn't like that at all though they were very like um we just rather not have a video up um we'd rather just be in peace but there's also a lot of lessons that you learn from that like I try to reach out to family for every case like heaven now um to get permission and and stuff like